Blog Talk Radio. Okay then, bloody hell. And welcome back once again to Progressive News Network. We had to we had to do a brief tribute to the Pyrrhic victory enjoyed by the orange one. And uh, without any further ado, I want to bring you some truth-telling by our good friend, Miss Nitty Gritty Grosel. Okay, so we got a lot to talk about. I do want to fill people in on, uh, was that a pomp and circumstance from the... uh, uh, Ruffles and flourishes. (laughs) Ruffles and flourishes, gotcha. Um, Yeah, so that's uh, referring to uh, Trump's victory lap that he took this week after the uh, um, acquittal, which is just the... That whole thing is um, quite a spectacle, and uh, and that they played that song uh, while he walked, literally walked across the red carpet was um, just uh, just vintage, you know, just vintage Trump. But so we've got we got to get rid of this guy, and the best way to get rid of this guy at this point is to elect a Democrat who. Can win. So we got to elect a Democrat who can win. We got to nominate one in the uh, primaries, which are going on right now. And how to tell you, didn't get off to a very good start. We have a, uh, a, a an official fiasco in Iowa. Uh, the caucuses were on uh, the third, which was was that a Monday or a Tuesday? Monday. It was. It was a Monday right after the Super Bowl. Um, the, uh, you know, I just want to give you a couple of stats. You know, there's there's been a lot of talk about Bernie Sanders bringing out, you know, that that his his worth to the party is who he can bring to the party, and the uh, Iowa caucuses have uh, for three years running. We've been watching the uh, participation. And uh, two cycles ago, participation was at an all-time high with something like 240,000 or 280,000 people participating. Now, in a state the size of Iowa, that still amounts to you know, low, low double, you know, like 16% of people turning out. So caucuses have a different uh, um, 
they're a much different kind of animal than a primary because you got to go and you got to stay for two hours and you got to argue with people you'd never met before, and uh, so so that really drives participation down. Now, two cycles ago. When participation was at an all-time high in Iowa, the reason why it was at an all-time high was because the uh, caucus was held very early. It was in January, and students were still home from college, and so there was a lot of student participation then. Now, uh, fast forward to 2016, you had turnout of 160,000. And then uh, 2020, you had turnout of a little bit over 160,000. But you didn't have the benefit of students being home for college. And uh, if you look at the numbers, Bernie Sanders actually did turn out uh, his, his younger voters. And it looks like the people who didn't come out were not in uh, the demographics that he was targeting. So Bernie Sanders did a lot of work, and it, this is something that we talked about a lot with regard to the fallout from the Iowa caucuses. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more in a minute. Is Bernie Sanders worked on the uh, multiracial working class coalition, and a lot of those votes were in the satellite caucuses. And so what they did was they went out to where people wouldn't normally be able to caucus because they work. They were shift workers or uh, there was no way to work around their work schedule. So they held these satellite caucuses to include people. So there was a um, South, South uh, Sudanese population and a large Latino population and you know people who just had not participated in the caucuses before. So Bernie Sanders actually did turn out his, uh, he did his part and he brought his people along. And the reason why these numbers don't compare to two cycles ago has to do with the peculiarities of two cycles ago. The uh, caucus fell on um, at a time when students were, were home from school. But this should tell you, I think, that caucuses perhaps maybe uh, should occur when uh, when students are home. Maybe that's, maybe that's a factor we ought to factor in. Uh, or just making it more, uh, making it easier for students to participate in these uh, caucuses in general. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the fiasco and what went wrong. And um, it, 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 Rick, can I get you just for a second to uh, to, to mute for me? I'm getting a lot of uh, uh, sure, sure. Uh, ambient noise. Thank you. The um, disaster in Dubuque. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout the state. So, okay. What we have here is... I think for a lot of people who are watching this closely um, and not everyone is watching it closely. I think that if you're in Twitter world, like I am, then you spent this whole last week, you know, waiting for uh, caucus results. Someone was circulating the meme with uh, Dave Chappelle as the crack addict. And it was like, you got any of them caucus results? 
you know, which is exactly how it felt day after day after day. And and we have the Zeno's paradox of the release of the uh, caucus results. So they started out with 62% and then they dribbled them out. You got maybe like 12 after that and then you got eight more percent and then four and then two. And then they held back those satellite caucuses until the very end. And the timing on the release of each of these tranches of uh, uh, caucus results seemed to coincide with certain media appearances by Pete Buttigieg. So right off the bat, 0% reporting on the night of the election, and you have Pete Buttigieg, uh, uh, he was the only one who did this. He gets out and declares victory, just flat out declares victory. Amy Klobuchar went, went prior to him, then, and she said, oh, we punched above our weight and we're on to New Hampshire and, you know, putting a happy face on a, a fifth place finish. Uh, but then comes Pete Buttigieg. And this is what, this is what Pete had to say uh, as, as he was, um, as he was taking the microphone the night of the caucuses. Here we go. By all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious. By all indications, we're going on to New Hampshire victorious. And he kept using that word victorious throughout the week. Uh, now, with 0% precincts reporting at the time that that uh, video was made or, or, or taken, that's a real disingenuous thing to say because number one, you don't know that you're victorious. And um, so, and so that's bad form just within the democratic party. You are, um, uh, when we talk about unity and we talk about the way that we want everyone to treat everyone, this is not the kind of thing that, that, that we're hoping to see. This is the opposite of what we're hoping to see. Um, but what's significant about that is that it recognizes that the whole reason to go through the Iowa and New Hampshire uh, 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 primaries and caucuses, the reason we do the whole rigmarole every election cycle for the presidential election is to establish momentum. Uh, Iowa does not have that many delegates, so it's not a big player with regard to delegates. Same with New Hampshire. But what it does do is it sets the tone and it sets the precedent going forward that candidates can then create their media narrative around and, you know, either claim momentum going forward or, you know, try to scoot under the radar and, and, you know, hopefully people didn't notice how bad you did. Now, on that account, you've got Biden, who came in fourth. You know, we've spent a week talking about Buttigieg and, and, and Bernie Sanders, and there's been very little attention paid to the tanking of the Biden campaign. He came in fourth. And Politico did a story on this earlier this week, and it was very interesting. I'll see if I can find it. 
uh, it wasn't something that I that I put on my uh, that I put on my uh, list to talk about. But it's it's interesting because this article talked to camp, Biden campaign staffers who were uh, who were very candid with the reporter, and you know they they were saying things like. Uh, they had no shows. They had caucus captains who just didn't bother to show up. They had, it was, it, it, it seems that what they were saying was that the campaign was mismanaged in Iowa. But I think there's a larger narrative there, which is that uh, the Joe Biden campaign has assumed that it was just going to skate through this and not have to actually compete with other uh, candidates out there. And that was reflected in the way that. Uh, the the campaign behaved on the ground, and you get to the you get to the end of this story, where the campaign workers are are just opening up and they're saying things like, oh yeah, it was a total clusterfuck, it was a total shit show, this that and the other. I mean, they were, you know, using you know, cussing a blue streak with the reporter because they were so stunned at a fourth place finish. This is Joe Biden, the former vice president of the United States came in fourth and no one could believe it. Now, those of us who can believe it are familiar with the way that campaigns can be run and, and, and mismanaged when you're overconfident. And I think that you've got a, um, a clear case of that here with Joe Biden. Compounding matters for Biden going into New Hampshire, he isn't projected to do much better. And then in South Carolina, where he was supposed to just clench it, Bernie Sanders is is uh, uh, caught up to him, and Bernie, it looks like Bernie Sanders is going to do very well in South Carolina. Uh, and some forecasters actually have Bernie Sanders winning South Carolina now. Uh, so the whole narrative about Biden skating through this primary is collapsing and it's collapsing fast in the way that Kamala Harris's campaign collapsed very quickly. As a matter of fact, Joe Biden had no scheduled events in New Hampshire this weekend prior to the, prior to the primary. That's the kind of thing that you do when your campaign is starting to uh, put things in boxes and uh, and pack it in and move along. This is not the kind of behavior that you expect from a campaign that is, you know, got the momentum and going going on to the next state and going to do great. This is not a good sign. This is not a good sign for their for their campaign at all. Now. I brought up polling because, and we're going to get back to this whole Pete Buttigieg thing, but I don't want to. I don't want to frame things in in terms of of uh, uh, Mayor Pete right now, because I think that I think that we have a discussion towards the end of my segment that is very important to to hit with that. I would like for us to look at some of the more positive things right now that are on the radar. And there's something that's very interesting that cropped up this week, which is uh, Nate Silver's polling operation 538 unveiled a new 
mathematical model that they're using, which is a, a, a qualitative model. This model takes into account things like momentum and you know, uh, different advantages that a campaign might have in different states. And the, uh, the uh, response of volunteers and the response of small dollar fundraising, all of those kind of, uh, kind of subjective issues or subjective uh, data points. And they're trying to quantify it and trying to quantify the qualitative and uh, uh, create a forecasting model that goes beyond just the phone calls and, and, and polling people and then doing the, uh, um, uh, the averaging out of all the polls. So, and this blows my mind <clears throat> because Nate Silver is no fan of um, Bernie Sanders. If you follow Nate Silver on on Twitter, you've you know been watching what's been going on in the last couple of months with his uh, posting on on the election. You have not seen a lot of favorable messages coming from 538 with regard to Bernie Sanders. But then all of a sudden, they they unveil this Democratic primary forecast and put Bernie Sanders at the very top of it. Now, I think this is dangerous. I'm going to tell you why. They put Bernie Sanders at the top of it. Then they have uh, um, right behind Bernie Sanders is nobody. And then Joe Biden and then Warren and then Buttigieg after Warren. So Buttigieg is in in fifth place, uh, way at the bottom. And this is one of the reasons why I don't think it's it does us very much good to talk about by, or Buttigieg's uh, uh, performance in Iowa. I don't think that it's it's uh, um, figuring into things very much. Uh, so right now, they have Bernie Sanders at, at the, with the odds of two in five, 44% chance of winning the nomination. They also have Bernie Sanders taking uh, taking New Hampshire, taking Nevada, taking South Carolina, all the way down, all the way down through the Super Tuesday states. Uh, the last time I checked, the only state that they didn't have Bernie Sanders taking was Alabama. Now, this is, this is earth shattering, absolutely earth shattering. The danger in this is that well, I see what they're doing with trying to quantify the qualitative. It's very difficult to do that. And while momentum and volunteers and, and, and this, that, and the other are very important, there are also some uh, uh, concerns that everyone should have just for democracy with regard to how the media plays into all of this. And I don't see that being taken into account in their modeling. So in terms of the way the corporate media deals with Bernie Sanders, they either ignore him, uh, treat him as a novelty that doesn't bear much uh, uh, respect or, 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 
or much consideration within a larger conversation, or they outright uh, uh, attack him the way that Chris Matthews did uh, this weekend. So they were um, they were doing a it might have been Friday. They were doing some sort of panel, and Chris Matthews went on this riff about how. Uh, he was afraid that Bernie Sanders was going to be like Fidel Castro and come to New York and execute people in Central Park. There's just this unhinged, weird, dystopic uh, flight of fancy. It was very bizarre. And Chris Hayes, uh, was actually the voice of reason in this. And he said, you know, look, I don't think that that's what, what Bernie Sanders is about. When Bernie Sanders talks about socialism, he's talking about Denmark and he's talking about investing in social programs such as healthcare and uh, tuition and, and, and those kinds of things. He's not talking about some kind of bloody revolution in the streets, but that, that bloody revolution in the streets, that got picked up, and it almost seemed coordinated to me because all day Saturday, everybody was talking about, you know, oh, Bernie Sanders is just a revolutionary who's, who's you know, wanting to dismantle the Democratic Party and dismantle <clears throat> government as we know it, and this, that, and the other, and it was... Uh, it, it seems almost too on the nose because you had Chris Matthews going out there and saying what he said and people responding to that. But then you saw the same basic message in the same basic format being repeated by other social media influencers over and over and over again. And I think that there's a reason for that. I think that, uh, that we are living in a time where there is a lot of attention being spent on social media and being spent on uh, um, managing perceptions through social media. And you can look at the people who have been very involved in the Iowa caucuses as a barometer of that. So, Going back to the uh, Iowa caucuses, you know, I I did two two extras this week, two PNN extras, and we did one the day after the caucus, and then one the day following that, as we started to get more um, fallout. And uh, one of the things that I mentioned both times was that prior to the caucuses, there was just this really weird uh, uh, story that was circulating that the Democratic Party was afraid that Bernie Sanders was going to uh, try and manipulate social media through uh, using, through talking about the caucus having been rigged, and the and the caucus not being fair to him and this that and the other. This was before the caucus and before all of this craziness happened with the counts 
in, in Iowa. And the Democratic Party was already going out there and doing uh, perception management on what to expect the day after the primary. And so they, they said that they were going to use a new weapon called the Trendalyzer. Now, if you look up Trendalyzer, this is actually a news aggregator that has been around forever. It's, it, it, it's, uh, um, it's not very fancy. It's not very sophisticated. But the Trendalyzer, they were going to use this to monitor tr Twitter traffic and watch for, quote, misinformation about uh, uh, rigging and variations of the word rigged uh, in, in an, because they saw that as an attempt to undermine legitimate vote results using disinformation. And so they were particularly pointing this at the Sanders campaign. Now, interestingly, the whole carcass was a big, crazy mess because of a software app that was developed by a group called Acronym. Acronym is the child of a, is the creation of a CEO, Tara McGowan. And Tara McGowan worked in the, worked on Obama campaigns, was Obama for America, and uh, has been the recipient of a lot of money from Silicon Valley uh, billionaires. Specifically, one of them, his name is Reed Hoffman, funded, who funded the creation of, of acronym, Silicon Valley uh, billionaire. Uh, and people are talking about acronym as the group that sabotaged the Iowa caucus results. Um, because they created this app called Shadow, which <laughs> totally didn't work. People couldn't log into it. And when they logged into it, it was spitting out the wrong information. So they'd log in, they'd input the information from the caucus, what the um, first round was, what the second round was, and so on and so forth. And the numbers kept changing and people couldn't get, couldn't get through. And it, it was just a big, hairy mess. Well, Max Blumenthal has, re has done a couple of stories in, at the Gray Zone, and you can find this at, the, at thegrayzone.com. He did one on February 4 and one on February 6, yeah, 4 and 6. And one is about uh, billionaire Seth Clareman, uh, who's, uh, uh, who had some uh, funding behind this group acronym, and then the second one is this billionaire, Reed Hoffman, who actually funded the creation of, of acronyms. Now, these guys have been funding the creation of this app and funding uh, uh, the work of, of acronym and shadow. And as some friends of mine on another podcast called Move Left Idiot said, like, could you get more blatant with a, with a you know, a, a, making reference to intelligence agencies 
I, I mean, actually using the name acronym, acronym is often what people call the alphabet soup, you know, uh, um, intelligence agencies. And then the actual app that they created was called Shadow, which is, uh, you know, also has its own, you know, rather dark, nefarious kind of connotation. So you don't need you know, while the Democratic Party seemed to have been very afraid of there being misinformation, you know, just made up out of whole cloth that would undermine people's uh, 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 confidence in the vote or in the caucus, nobody has to make up anything. The, the way that the caucuses were actually run and the people who were behind it and the people who were funding the activities behind it really speak for themselves. So uh, what you have here are a couple of entities, and you have the CEO, Tara McGowan, who has been hailed in um, celebrity, like celebrity Silicon Valley kind of media as uh, 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 being the next great hope for the Democratic Party and uh, and that she was potentially laying the groundwork to usurp the DNC entirely. This, that, that was written in Vanity Fair. Um, acronym has been for years overseeing a massive Facebook media operations uh, that were intentionally modeled after Internet Research Agency, IRA, the, the, the Russian trolling operation, where what you do is you set up all of these little uh, localized uh, media outlets. So it'd be like, say, for instance, uh, you know, Brevard County Political News or Tampa Bay Area Sports and Weather, you know, things like that. So it'd be very localized and they would uh, as people participated on Facebook in, 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 the, in these particular media operations, they would scrape the information from people's profiles so that they had uh, a sense of who would react to what kind of media. Now, this is why I said when, when IRA first came along that this is what troll, uh, troll farms do, is they scrape data, they uh, push information out to appeal to a certain to certain sets and subsets of people. So it's important to know whether you're talking to evangelicals or if you're talking to sports fans or if you're talking to storm chasers or whatever it is. You want to know what they're what what they nerd out on. You want to know what it is that that gets their attention and keeps their attention. And then what acronym did was they pushed out. Uh, advertising and they pushed out more messaging that was specifically targeted to those groups. So then you kind of get into this um, uh, uh, kind of cognitive infiltration kind of kind of thing. So it gets really interesting though when you turn to when you turn to the uh, the, the money people who are behind these operations and. You might remember in 2017, in the special election, the Alabama special election for, for the Senate, where you had Roy Moore and Doug Jones. And Doug Jones was a conservative Democrat who's trying to uh, unseat this, this Republican who 
seem to have a problem with with molesting young young women, you know, uh, girls who are 14, 15 years old. And uh, there was this really bizarre operation that was carried out in Alabama that was a false flag where a third candidate was created. I suppose a third candidate was created and, and, and they were pushing, they were trying to push people towards that third candidate. They were using these uh, uh, trolling operations to scrape that information and find the people who would respond to a third party candidate. And then secondly, they created a false flag where they had, where they had bought all of these Russian troll bots and attributed them to uh, Roy Moore. Now, this operation was done by a, a group called New Knowledge, who then went on to provide a Senate intelligence briefing on the uh, on the, the grave threat Russia poses to the United States with regard to our social media. Um, so these are some really deep, crazy intersections with acronym, with shadow, with the Democratic Party, with really dark shenanigans. You know, this this whole thing with the false flag operation in Alabama is is legendary. Um, and you know, just to just to make the connection a little bit tighter, people involved in in these operations. One of them is um, uh, Dimitri Melhorn a venture capitalist and political strategist uh, accustomed to walking the line between corporate, the corporate world and the Democratic Party. And so what he was doing was using all this entrepreneurial kind of hype to get the Democratic Party to buy into these uh, for-profit media enterprises. And one of the things that that I find really interesting about this is um, Melhorn's career path has tracked closely with Pete Buttigieg. He studied at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and launched his career at McKenzie Associates, just like, just like Pete Buttigieg did, and then became a leading advocate for school privatization as the CEO of Michelle Ray's Students First. Now, one, one last thing on this, because I've run into this on Facebook. Uh, pledging to inoculate our politics and our economy against corruption, white nationalism, and mass deceit, uh, Melhorn's operation, which is called Digidems, has uh, 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 taken a lot of donations and is pushing out media through entities called Woke Vote and Push Black. Push Black is a, 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 a racial justice group. Woke Vote is a, a, a generic kind of get out the vote. And then there was an, an anti-Nazi organization known as Integrity for America. Push Black somehow got a hold of me, and they won't stop pinging me on Facebook Messenger. So uh, every time I get a message from Push Black, I am reminded of how this dark money has been operating in the back rooms in our democratic process. So if you run into any of these groups, just know, just know that their funding is a, uh, is a uh, kind of deep and dark. Now, 
let's turn back. Let's turn back. I think we can do this. I think we can go back right now and and review this situation in in Iowa. Let me find my uh, find my notes on this. Okay, they're over here. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so right as we were going on tonight, there was I had mentioned that there had been a an announcement that. Uh, that the Iowa results are in, they've got a hundred percent in, and uh, the state party's results show Pete Buttigieg as the delegate winner, but caucus tally sheets could not be changed, even if they contained mistakes, according to the lawyer for, uh, for the party. So what happened was late last night, an email went out by the Iowa state Democratic chair um, that even if even if there were glaring mistakes in 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 the counts in the votes that they were not going to correct them that they had to stand as is which is just um, which is just crazy and what they said was it should be right here. IDP chair, Iowa Democratic Party chair, Tony Price, Troy Price, sent an internal email to the party attorney saying that any re-examination of precinct results cannot change the result on caucus math worksheets, even if they are wrong. And he said, um, he said, the incorrect math on the caucus math worksheets must not be changed, quote, to ensure the integrity of the process, unquote. Uh, most importantly, the worksheet is the caucus chair and secretary's certification of the results as required by Iowa code, blah, blah, blah. It is the legal voting record of the caucus like a ballot. So what's being reported here is you have a major conflict between what is considered the uh, the the legal record of the caucus and the ballot, which are these worksheets, and then what the party chair is saying that they're going to count or that they have counted, which uh, happens to be wildly inaccurate. And there's been some really good uh, independent journalism following how many mistakes have been going on and who they favored. Uh, there's, it, it looks like a, a According to uh, um, some researchers, many, many researchers online, too many to name, that uh, when you look at the mistakes that were made in Iowa, you have, you get this graph where, where you've got mistakes against a candidate on the right-hand side and mistakes for a candidate on the right-hand side. You got all the candidates stacked up. And as you look at all of the mistakes, you see Bernie Sanders had a huge, just this giant line of mistakes against him. And then you go down the list further and you see Pete Buttigieg had all of these mistakes that wound up in his favor, which is just bizarre. You know, you, you even had, you even had some caucus sites where Deval Patrick had somehow received all of the uh, caucus tallies 
that should have gone to another candidate. I think it was Steyer. So people were just willy-nilly moving around the numbers on on the uh, on the tally. And while they were doing this, they kept, like I said, it was the the, the Zenos caucus results. They kept dribbling them out in dribs and drabs. You know, here's here's a couple of three percent more. Of, of the totals. Here's 2% more. And they kept holding back the satellite caucuses. Well, the reason they held back the satellite caucuses is that that is where the multiracial working class coalition came together to uh, came together to uh, uh, increase participation of otherwise disenfranchised voters. These are people that you absolutely, that the party has been saying for years and years that that is who they want to be participating in these in these elections. And those were the precisely the results that they kept holding back and that they wouldn't give to us. Now, it looks like uh, even given this this fiasco that went on in Iowa and the big media campaign to push Pete Buttigieg, you know, which you saw at the CNN town hall. Remember, CNN is the uh, media organization that uh, did the debate where they had uh, the Elizabeth Warren face off with uh, Bernie Sanders, where, you know, they they said uh, um, they basically uh, allowed Elizabeth Sanders, Elizabeth Warren to present her narrative about Bernie Sanders being sexist without any kind, without having to back it up, without having to defend it. It was just taken as a given. Well, at the town hall that they did this week, again, with this kind of shenanigan, they introduced Pete Buttigieg as the victor in, in Iowa. And interestingly, the results that were uh, that people were waiting for, another drib, another drib drab came out right as he was making that, right as Cuomo was was patting Buttigieg on the back and saying congratulations for your win. Here's another bunch of, uh, of uh, uh, results from the caucus that that were problematic, actually very problematic for um, Pete Buttigieg. One of the things that corporate media has done throughout all of this is they've they've given primacy to this weird thing called the state delegate equivalent, which sounds like processed cheese product, probably because it is. Uh, a, a state delegate equivalent is is a people are voting on who to send to their state convention in order to vote on who gets to be the party chair in the next year. That's what a state delegate equivalent does. A state delegate equivalent is not a delegate. It's not, it's not who wins the, the race. And, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders had 6,000 more votes in the first round and 2,500 more votes in the second round of voting in New in uh, Iowa, and so he did a press conference that where where he said, you know, where I'm from, it's the person who wins the most votes who wins. But corporate media kept paying attention to the SDEs, the state 
uh, delegate equivalents, which makes absolutely no sense in a national uh, uh, election. Now, the good news is this doesn't seem to have impacted the polling going into New Hampshire. So polling that has come after Iowa, uh, we have a CNN tracking poll, and you've got Sanders seven points ahead of Buttigieg, Biden at third at 12%, and Warren at 9%. And then you've got uh, YouGov CBS poll, Sanders at 29%, Buttigieg at 25%. You've got Biden in fourth place in that poll at 12%. And there's an Emerson poll that that has uh, Sanders at... 10 points over, almost 10 points over Pete Buttigieg. So all of these polls, all these surveys happened after the Iowa caucuses, and this seems to be capturing uh, how people feel. Now, I think that there's some momentum, of course, for Buttigieg going into New Hampshire. But then after New Hampshire, you've got Iowa and New Hampshire, very white states. Buttigieg has no support with people of color. I don't think you're going to see Buttigieg do well in Nevada or uh, or South Carolina or many of these or any of the Super Tuesday states. So really after this first round, he's kind of a non-player and we really are going to have to deal with the story about Joe Biden tanking and Elizabeth Warren and and Amy Klobuchar having having issues. Now it's important to note that the reason why corporate media is having such a hard time with dealing with Bernie Sanders, I think, is because Bernie Sanders talks about class. In this country, we're allowed to talk about race, and we're allowed to talk about other kinds of intersectionality, but we're never allowed to talk about class. And there was a really interesting appearance by James Carville uh, this week that I think gives some insight into how party elites and how elites in the country in general are reacting to what is going on right now with the Bernie Sanders campaign. So have a listen to this. I'm 75 years old. Why am I here doing this? Because I am scared to death. That's why. And we got to get, let's get relevant here, people, for sure. Okay, that, that's why I don't roll pairs over. No. Jeremy, they were, all the Sanders people were taking pictures wishing Jeremy Coburn. To- <laughs> so there's a, there's Carville throwing a, a, a fit because uh, he thinks that um, Bernie Sanders is like Jeremy Corbyn. Here's another. Urban core is not going to get it done. What we need is power. You understand? That's what this is about. Without power, you have nothing. You just have talking points. That is James Carville saying that uh, that, uh, that the kind of power that Bernie Sanders has, which is people power, immense yes. people power, yeah, just know, doesn't matter. Uh, and of course it country. wouldn't matter to uh, to James Carville because he's not that kind of he's not that kind of consultant. He's he's, he's an elite. And what James Carville is interested in is making sure that people who have a lot of money are happy because that is who he and Mary Matlin have made their um, career off of. One last one right here. Yeah, concern. I, I know these donors, and they're not going to give a popsicle to the DMC right now. I can promise you that. 
the donors are not going to give a popsicle. Um, not that anybody wanted a popsicle, but the donors are not going to give a popsicle to the DNC right now. Uh, he, this was not a great appearance for James Carville. He looked like he just got out of bed. His glasses were on crooked. He looked terrible, and he looked kind of unhinged. It was, it, it was not a good appearance for him. Uh, at the same time, you've got Dr. Jake Johnson. If Democrats care about winning in the fall, if it ends up being a contest, uh, a contest between Bernie Sanders and Mayor Pete, then people need to probably rally around Bernie Sanders because Mayor Pete's ability to achieve, his ability to actually mm-hmm. expand the voter base outside of Iowa doesn't look good. The guy, Dr. Jake Johnson is no friend of Bernie Sanders. Okay, so with with him making those kind of statements, and then you've got, uh, uh, like I said, Matthews earlier, you know, claiming that there would be people hanging in Central Park, and you've got James Carville with, with his freak out there. You know, something is going wrong. And one of the things that happened after Iowa was Tom Perez stuck his little head up out of nowhere. You know, Tom Perez is the uh, DNC chair, and he wanted to re-canvas. He wanted a re-canvas of the Iowa results. I think he called for that on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, and then he took it back the very next day. At the same time, you had Iowa, uh, the, the former chair of the Iowa Democrats, saying that, look, this app was pushed on us by the DNC, the, the requirements that have screwed us up, uh, that, that led to this whole state delegate equivalent nonsense, that was pushed on us by the DNC. You've got uh, all of these other state Democratic parties who are rallying to the support of Iowa because they see the DNC is playing this blame game and putting everything on the local uh, leadership and making it look like it was all Iowa's fault. And Iowa Democratic Party is saying, no, look, we're just doing what the party was telling us to do. So finally, the last thing I'm going to, I'm going to get into is what, how, how is this going to impact uh, going into Nevada? Because remember, Nevada and Iowa were both using the same software. They're both using Shadow. So immediately, Iowa sa- or Nevada says, ah, we can't use that Shadow app. Uh, uh, so, so we're just not going to de- we're, we're not going to have anything like that. And then they backtracked pretty quickly and said that they were going to debut. Uh, a new iPad-based tool, not an app, they're very vehement about how it's not an app, but a tool to calculate math on caucus day in the wake of the Iowa fiasco. So instead of relying on, you know, people who've done caucuses for, you know, for decades, you know, when you go to vote in a primary in Florida, you know, you see the same people there year after year. Every time you go vote local elections, presidential elections, it's always the same people. It's the same in pocket states. These people have been doing it forever. They know what they're doing. And, uh, and all of a sudden, we have all of these requirements for uh, for apps and tools and this, that, and the other that create a buffer between 
the caucus captains and then the, the count that is made to, to the party. And I think that this is creating a lot of mistrust. And if you want to talk about, you know, rigging and you want to talk about undermining the confidence in the vote, what is undermining our confidence in the Democratic Party to be able to, uh, to, to run a caucus is that they keep pushing these, these hinky apps and, and tools, quote unquote, on us. And it looks like to anybody who's, who's been you know, working throughout this last week on trying to figure out what, what, what went on in Iowa, it looks to everybody like what these things did was they got in the way. And it almost seems like they were designed to get in the way. And I was reminded of uh, a, a while back, you know, CIA and, the, and our intelligence, FBI, are always doing releases of historic documents. And not too long ago, they released an old OSS sabotage manual. Um, U.S. intelligence trained uh, large numbers of people to devise ways of sabotaging outcomes of elections without getting caught. And some of the things that they did are really banal. Some of them are, 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 are more um, uh, sophisticated. But uh, one of the things that, that they tried to, to uh, one of the things that they suggested that you do is to throw a monkey wrench into the machinery by um, trying to delay the uh, uh, communication of, of important information, like what caucus results, get the numbers wrong, you know, so, so that, you know, so that people can't understand, you know, can't get a, a solid count. So that starts to undermine confidence in the vote. Um, cut them off accidentally, which is what we saw on national television with one of the caucus chairs talking to Wolf Blitzer, just totally cut off. While, while on national television and, uh, you know, make, make mistakes in routing, try to lower mor morale with uh, inefficient workers, uh, uh, discriminate against efficient workers, so on and so forth. This, this little manual right here has described to a T, I think, what has been going on with the Democratic Party in the last, you know, since what we've seen in Iowa. And it makes me, you know, going back to that weirdo article from CNN, where before the caucuses, before anyone cast any kind of vote, they were already trying to fight uh, online troll misinformation and looking for the word rigging and this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, this is just, uh, it almost seems It almost seems like if you're ask, if you're having to ask yourself constantly, uh, is this incompetence or is it sabotage? Is this incompetence or did they mean to be incompetent? Is this who is this benefiting? If you're always having to ask yourself that and 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 doing it repeatedly, you know, if we see this again in 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 Nevada, for instance, uh, then I think you've got a problem that's systemic, you know. Uh, 
you know, maybe everyone up and down the line is incompetent. Maybe they don't know how to take a phone call. Maybe they don't know how to do math. Maybe they shouldn't be in any of these positions of power. But what should happen, I tell you this, is that Tom Perez should have gotten out in front of, of this disaster and done something proactive. But instead of doing that, what he did was he got out in front to, to, to shield Pete Buttigieg to try and pump him up. So instead of trying to figure out what was going on and to try to solve the problems that, that were happening in, in Iowa, every move that he made was, uh, was to benefit Pete Buttigieg. So, you know, uh, all I can say is, uh, you know, check out this, uh, I'm going to put this in, in my show notes and in my uh, Twitter uh, thread. Mark Ames did a really good thread three days ago, taking clips from the old OSS sabotage manual and reading it. I got chills because I, I remembered all of these passages and I remembered, you know, like all of this like little, you know, nitpicky things that, that you're supposed to look for, you know, uh, as a, as, as a lefty progressive, you want to know how it is that, that people sabotage things so that you can look out for it in your own organizations. This was stuff that, that we uh, looked for in Occupy. You know, we were always on the lookout for, for people who were coming along and trying to gum up the machinery and try to, you know, uh, 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 create drama and, and, you know, divide people and so on and so forth. You know, this is exactly what what some some folks in some quarters have been saying that the Russians have been doing to uh, to voters in the United States. And it looks like to me, like we're doing a really bang up job of it on our all by ourselves. We haven't had to import any of that from Russia or um, or any third party country. And with that, Rick, I uh, I gee, many Christmas. It looks like I have talked for an hour <laughs> well and it was all very very important stuff you know I found myself thinking I don't know whether it was day two or day three that when you look at the analysis of who benefits that that besides what I would call the the premature uh, election of Mr. Buttigieg from the non-existent totally bizarre count to the second part of that equation. And then literally as I'm thinking it, I heard one of the talking heads on uh, MSNBC say, well, of course the Republicans benefit because the Democrats look completely incompetent. Mm -hmm. You know, how can you possibly imagine that we're going to give these guys the reins of power? Not, not to say, that if we ask the same question about the Republicans, we'd get any better an answer. But how could you possibly give Democrats the, the reins of power, the right to control, you know, what is perceived as the government takeover of medicine? This completely destroys any legitimacy and any sense that these people can get it right when they can't even get a vote count right. And the fact that it took so long that literally we're still seeing interesting, bizarre, tweaked results almost a week later is, is just, well, 
it really gives one pause. Mm-hmm. And speaking of pause, we have <laughs> two activists uh, coming up next that try to give ICE a little pause. Uh, many of us out here in progressive land know that the kind of denial of human rights visited on prison populations, as bad as it was a few years ago, I mean, literally, as bad as it was a few years ago, has only been exacerbated by the rise of these for-profit prisons. And they have appeared not only in the the hyperinflated criminal uh, prisons, but also this is, these have now metamorphosed, and they're also running mental health facilities, and sadly, these new prisons for children and for immigrants. So we had uh, a word that a group recently blockaded, uh, did a sit-in at a facility run by GEO, uh, one of the largest for-profit prison uh, organizations in America, and they happened to have an office in Boca. So they did a sit-in, and uh, there are more aspects of this story that need to be told. But here is uh, two of the activists that uh, kind of give you an idea of what's going on. Let me bring you Nick from the Anti-Geo Group first. Nick, you are involved in an anti-geo protest as well as a project that uh, now we're defending the activists. Could you give us a general overview of what the the geo company is about? Of course. So the geo group is the second largest for-profit private prison corporation in the U.S. and it specializes in, in of course, you know, prisons and ICE detention facilities as well as uh, mental health. Uh, treatment facilities and to profit on these people who are being incarcerated and and so that's the essentially that is what private prisons are for they are not in the service of rehabilitation because that will essentially put them out of business so they profit off of prisoners yet the Jew group has been reported in lawsuits and has been reported of rampant sexual abuse and and violent treatment of, of the of youth and unsanitary facilities and life-threatening uh, living conditions. So it's a very, you know, corrupt, horrific corporation. Are they involved in some of these child prisons as well? That's correct, the ju- juvenile detention facilities. Here they are profiting off of human suffering, providing terrible care at inflated prices, and you were part of a group that was rallying to protest this, correct? That's correct. Uh, there were people that were arrested for protesting this. Uh, that's, that's correct. We took uh, direct action. And we shut down Geo Group for pretty much the entirety of the day. Um, we locked on to what is called. So I was one of the ones who was locked into the Sleeping Dragon, which is this barrel filled with cement. You have a uh, PVC pipe with a metal rod that you hook onto with a chain uh, attached to your wrist. And so we blocked the entrances of the Geo Group headquarters. Now, there's another protest coming up about the incarceration and about the charges placed against these protesters, right? Yes, including myself, yeah. So when is the rally? And tell tell us how people can get involved to, to support you. So it's uh, going to be February 11th, and we are going to be in front of the, the building 
in which our trials will be held. West Palm Beach Courthouse, room uh, 2E. Yeah. What actually were you and the other activists arrested for? What did they? What were the charges? So there was a, a city ordinance uh, trespassing, and then another charge for me was uh, the sleeping dragon, of course. So that's that's where what we're up against. And just to let you know, we do have a, like a list of demands of Geo Group. If I could, please, yeah, please great. do. We were demanding of Geo Group that they end all contracts with. So GeoGroup receives more taxpayer dollars for immigration immigration detention than any other ICE contractor, and so and so we and we also we demanded that they open every cage and and release their captives. We demand GeoGroup pay reparations to everyone that they've imprisoned, and we demanded that they stop profiting off of the most vulnerable and least privileged of our society. And we demand that the state of Florida cut all contracts with GeoGroup and demand the government and corporations to stop profiting and taking money from GeoGroup and that banks and shareholders defund GeoGroup. We are essentially calling for the abolition of ICE. We are calling for the dismantling of borders, calling for the abolition of all prisons and an end to slavery. This is what is considered the new Jim Crow in for-profit prison corporations. Well, Nick, thank you so much. I wish you every success, and I certainly hope that you get fair treatment, which uh, yeah, unfortunately definitely. is not not terribly likely, but justice does prevail from time to time, sir. And I, I thank you so much for your time and for your commitment to protecting the future. Because of that's course, yeah. Thank you. Have, yeah, I really appreciate it. I also want to bring you uh, this word from our good friends at Daughters of Isis. Daughters of Isis is the ancestor of aromacology, indigenous scents representing the fragrant memories of our ancestors to provide us the tools of the inner quest, the authentic moment, and to heal the Earth Mother. Daughtersofisis.com. Wholesale available also. Mention PNN and enjoy a free sample from our apothecary. For your aromatherapy needs, that's daughtersofisis.com. Progressive News Network, a new Mercury Media production, where you'll find the voices of actors, the voices of those working to make this a better world. We believe that as we face challenging times, the human spirit can face and surmount the foolish and the short-sighted. Tune in every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, for the live show, or anytime you can. Progressive News Network, found at www.newmercurymedia.com slash PNN slash. We have a future. Tune in and build it with us. Underwritten by Florida Media Labs, produced by Rick Spivak in cooperation with Canary and a Coal Mine Films. Many of you out there uh, were watching when the uh, current occupant at 1600 held uh, held the most bizarre uh, rally uh, after after turning up at a prayer breakfast and basically accusing uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi of lying when she said she prayed for him. And uh, essentially uh, denouncing his uh, perceived enemies. 
And then he held a second event because when your ego is as fragile as his, you need to pull out all the stomps and really pretend that everything's okay. So in his uh, dishonor, uh, I would like to play this for you. Okay, then. Bloody hell. And now we'll hear from a second one of the anti-geo protesters. We'll be hearing from Wendy. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring you a marvelous activist, uh, a young woman who's been uh, involved in fighting the prison industry, the commercial prison industry, and in specific, uh, anti-geo. Wendy, welcome. Thank you so much. Wendy, to me, I've always found it interesting, uh, you know, for most people, merely living their lives and trying to scramble to make some kind of living is more than a full plate for them. But it takes a special kind of person who says, okay, but also I need to contribute. I need to work to make this a better world. What was it for you, and when did you start doing activist uh, activities? About a couple years ago, I just had some mutual friends that were posting a lot about what's happening at um, the Miramar ICE office where folks are forced to wait in long lines to check in with ICE and possibly be deported or detained. And I met more friends that were visiting at Chrome, which is an ICE detention facility. Just from seeing on the news and hearing those stories kind of secondhand, I became really stressed out about the situation and just felt hopeless and that I really wanted to do something. So I did. So I just started volunteering and showing up and kind of went from there. That's wonderful. I, uh, In one of my other lives, I'd been involved in event production, and the company I worked for was actually hired during the height of the Marielle boat lift to go and do a concert at Chrome Detention Center. And beyond this incredible sadness and, and, and miracle transformation that music is, I had had a dream the night before, before I even heard about this uh, project. I had a dream that I was doing a a concert in a concentration camp. And I woke up and I'm thinking, what the hell? How could you do a concert? How could you walk in and do entertainment for people that are incarcerated and then walk away? How, How could you even do that? So then you can imagine my amazement when later that day I went to the office and they said, you're doing a show at Chrome Detention Center. And it was it was amazing. But to your point, just recently there was some anti-geo action. Uh, geo is a corporation that profits off the incarceration of human beings, both in, in should we say, general prison population as well as, and, and most horrifically, the immigration process. Um, talk about the anti-geo movement. Yeah, so on December 3rd, um, a group of eight of us 
um, did an actual lockdown of every single doorway and the garage ramp um, at the GEO headquarters in Boca Raton um, just because we feel like we have the privilege to be able to do that. And, you know, having the GEO headquarters here in Boca Raton, um, you know, this is one of the second largest private prison operators in the world. We felt the responsibility to do something and try to interrupt their work, which is supporting people and caging people. Um, so we did a lockdown that closed our office most of the day. Um, and that was one of kind of a few actions locally in South Florida to kind of protest against, you know, the abuse that they're inflicting on our neighbors. The, there are those who, who feel that protests are ineffective, that, that street action is worthless. But I have seen, and many, many other people have seen, that street action that bring people's attention to an issue that they're walking blithely by otherwise is so powerful. And again and again, I know I have heard, and I'm sure you have heard, you're there for me. You're standing there for me. Could you describe the reaction of some of the, you know, seemingly uh, unaware, unconcerned workers who found themselves blocked? What was it like blockading that building? Yeah, certainly it's the anti-geo protest and at Miramar. Um, the lockdown we did there as well in the past. You do run into frustrated workers, at least we heard from the folks that were doing the peaceful protest, that, you know, people were upset. We're just trying to get to work, just trying to do our job. And if I don't do this job, someone else will. So what's the point? Um, no, but I just think it's absolutely crucial to interrupt business as usual. And I do think it makes a difference and it's going to be inconvenient to people. But at the end of the day, they're profiting off of other people's fame. So they should find another job. And until they do, you know, we have to keep chipping away at it where we can. Isn't it true that this GEO group uh, also has been participating in incarcerating children? Yeah. So they imprison adults, children. They imprison approximately 9,000 people a day. And they make, you know, millions of dollars doing that. They donate heavily to our Florida legislators um, and, and Florida politics. So... It's a really big deal that I think people don't even, you know, think about. But this is our tax dollars that are going to GEO to do this, to abuse people. Now, I understand that there is uh, another rally on the 11th. Could you talk about that? Just before the court uh, hearing. Oh, talk about the um, the rally? Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to be doing a rally before we head into court. Um, just to highlight and remind folks that the GEO headquarters is right here in Boca Raton in our backyard, and they are imprisoning people and about all of their crimes against humanity. Well, Wendy, uh, people who want to support the anti-GEO movement, uh, how would you recommend they get involved? How would you recommend they, they help? Yeah, um, so please show up on Tuesday, February 11th at 7.30 a.m. That's when the rally is going to start. And then at 8.30, if, want, if folks want to try to rally outside in support of the activists that are, you know, facing charges from the arrest, they can please join us at um, the West Palm Beach Courthouse at 7.30. And they can also find the event page on Facebook um, called the Geo is Guilty Rally. Um, it's hosted by... Uh, Fort Lauderdale, Who Not Bombed is one of the groups they could look up to find that event page. What a great, fantastic group. 
Well, Wendy, thank yeah, you so much. Are, are you facing charges? I am, yeah. Trespass, violating city ordinance, and then the state attorney's office has threatened us with a felony charge as well. Well, Wendy, best of luck. Uh, we really support the work that you're doing. Thank you for standing there for human dignity, for human freedom, for an end to profiteering in prison systems. Thank you so very much. Very much appreciate the work that you're doing. You have a wonderful day, and I hope you get justice on the 11th. You too. You take care, my friend. Solidarity. You too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you. For this I came from Ireland, Mary Harris Jones might have said. She was 37 in 1867, and her husband and all four children lay dead from yellow fever. Moving to Chicago from Memphis, she set up a dressmaking business. She wrote in her autobiography, often while sewing for the lords and barons who lived in magnificent houses on Lakeshore Drive, I would see poor shivering wretches, jobless and hungry, walking along the frozen lakefront. Summers I watched mothers from the slums, lugging babies and little children, hoping for a breath of fresh air from the lake. This compassion and acuteness led Mary Harris Jones to the Knights of Labor, to the IWW, and to virtually every struggle of working people, particularly miners who had the most dangerous job next to farm workers. Sweet-faced, impeccably clad in widow's black, with a touch of white lace at the throat, she was not afraid of the devil. At a time when few women traveled alone, she crisscrossed the nation, her possessions tied up in a black shawl. I like to travel light, she said. One time, when confined by the police in a dark basement during a Colorado mining strike, she passed the time fending off rats with her shoe. Another time in Pennsylvania, she was confronted by anti-union thugs. She whipped out from under her crisp little gingham apron a thirty-eight special and invited them to withdraw. They did. Hauled up before a judge in West Virginia, she called him a scab to his face. Told she must say, Your Honor, she retorted, Well, I can't call him Your Honor until I know how honorable he is. In Alabama, she slipped past a military sentry, explaining that she was going to a missionary meeting to knit mittens for the heathen of Africa. A sense of humor was one of Mother Jones' most powerful tools. 
When she was a mere 73, she organized a massive march of children to New York City. Accused of exploiting them, she pointed out that they labored 10 and 12 hours a day in mines, fields, and factories. This led to the raising of the legal working age to 14. At 89, she participated in the Great Steel Strike of 1919. Mother is here, was the cry, particularly among the women. Mother Jones knew that no struggle could be won unless the women were behind it. She lived to be 100, but one hopes her spirit lives on. Tune in next time for the life of Fanny Sellins. Songs for the Unsung is a project of user-friendly music, script, narrative, and original music by Joanne Foreman, sung by Jenny Bird. friends I get to bring you our justice correspondent but I've got some new intro music for her, so hold on one second okay then bloody hell Of justice, end quote, as reported in The Guardian. 
news organizations worldwide called out this farce of a trial. A piece in The Guardian by John Henley sums up the international editorials from our allies in the EU and the UK, including Australia, and it's titled A Pretense of Justice, a Global Press on Trump's Acquittal. And according to John Henley, The Guardian itself took, looked at the impeachment and portrayed it, quote, as a bitter charade that would allow the president to continue his onslaught on American democracy with potential global consequences. The German response in Zeit uh, basically said that the outcome in the impeachment process was, quote, a triumph for Trump, not just over the Democrats, but over democracy, end quote. Um, and the Guardian went on to describe at the end of this historic and absurd process, um, really pushed forward the idea of, quote, how seriously damaged the U.S. political system now is, end quote, in Zeit. Um, they went on to say that this is a president, quote, who knows no borders. Um, and he didn't begin this attack on democracy, but Trump, according to Zizit, Trump recognized this assault on democracy and he accelerated it. And that Trump took advantage of decades of mis- dis- mistrust of institutions and norms, offered what can only be called lies and slander to those who opposed him. And now we have this mess. The French response in Liberation said, quote, the curtain had fallen not before time on a process that basically, quote, offered the American public and the world a desperate spectacle, a hollow pretense of justice without testimony or an ounce of impartiality. It ended as expected in the president's acquittal, end quote. Um, the French paper also claimed that the U.S. Senate um, who once was actually known as one of the world's greatest deliberative bodies, quote, did not deliberate at all, not for a moment. In refusing to allow witnesses to be called, the Republican bloc, more subservient to Trump than ever, ensured the evidence against him would simply not be examined, end quote. The Australian response in the age, they warned of graver consequences because of the acquittal, quote, even taking into account Trump's positive his negatives, corruption, his reliance on lying, the numerous sexual assault allegations, his disregard for the spirit and letter of the law are destructive for constitutional democracy, end quote. And the age in Australia also said, quote, with Republicans unwilling to check his power, Trump functions more like a ruler, a mob boss, or a kingpin than an elected official. Disregard for the law should be of deep concern to citizens of democracies everywhere, it creates a world where status matters more than law. The impeachment trial of Donald Trump marks a shift and marks a dangerous turn for the state of democracy across the globe, end quote. The Netherlands responded in De Volkskran. Their Washington correspondent agreed, saying that the impeachment process, the outcome was never doubted. Quote, if it has made one thing very clear, it's that he has the undivided support of his party and that if he wins in November, he will be only accountable only to himself, end quote. Spain's response, Nel Pace, said that this was the most partisan impeachment ever. Um, they did paint Mitt Romney as a bit on the heroic side. And to quote El Pace, they said, quote, the Republican defense rose like an unshakable wall. Regardless of whether or not the accusations against him were true, Trump, you know, they, they said Trump should not be impeached, end quote. 
Um, El Pace went on to say, quote, the founding fathers were aware the president would accumulate so much power that the Constitution had to be given an instrument to remove him under certain circumstances, end quote. Uh, paper further said, quote, on Wednesday, a divided Senate decided Trump would complete the 349 days he had left in office. On the street, there was no noise, no great protest. There, there have not been any entire trial, end quote. Now, we'll look further here because obviously this is the whole process and the acquittal itself is a dereliction of duty. In terms of legal watchdogs, we found a diverse coalition of national advocacy groups led by Free Speech for People. It's an, uh, an organization, and they signed off on a letter denouncing the Trump acquittal by the GOP as, quote, again, a grave dereliction of duty. And basically, the statement was quite, it was very simple, okay, and the group said, signed off on this letter, besides free speech for people, was co-signed by groups such as by the people, Center for Popular Democracy, Common Defense, Equal Justice Society, Greenpeace USA, Progressive Democrats of America, Revolving Door Project, and Women's March. What does the statement demand? The statement demands that the House of Representatives take immediate action by the following. I'm going to read straight from the statement. First, they want to subpoena John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, and any other witnesses or documents that were previously contested and refused by the White House and litigate those subpoenas up to the Supreme Court if need be. They're also demanding that the impeachment inquiry be reopened to consider what they call the full panoply of Trump's misconduct, and that's detailed in a document uh, titled Impeachment for the People, uh, dated from November of 2019. They're also demanding that create and staff a standing committee in the House that would defend free and fair elections. Here's the full statement. The decision of 52 United States senators to vote that President Donald Trump had not committed bribery or, any, or other high crimes or misdemeanors is a grave dereliction of duty that not only emboldens an increasingly unrestrained and lawless president, but endangers the survival of our constitutional democracy. In the short term, the president has learned that he can use his office and our money to extort a foreign government into investigating or harassing his own political opponents for the sake of boosting his reelection prospects. And Trump has shown that he has placed these opportunities whenever possible. The nation should prepare itself for more of the same, some of which may lie behind the shadows as Trump's efforts to pressure Ukraine almost did and be ready to respond immediately. But the long-term damage is even worse. The president's defenders do not defend against the impeachment charges by arguing that the president was innocent of the acts of which he was accused. If the facts never been had, had been even ambiguous, let alone in his favor, he would have gladly encouraged his handpicked chief of staff, national security advisor, and other staff to testify on his behalf. Instead, he blocked their testimony with the complicity of his supporters in the Senate because he knew that his handpicked advisors would incriminate him. The worst part is that these senators, senators accepted the official defense presented by Trump's legal defense team. Quote, if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment, end quote. This is a recipe for authoritarianism in service of the president's own reelection efforts, and it will not be the end of Donald Trump's impeachable misconduct. We at Free Speech for People with our allies call the House to take three immediate steps. First, the committee of the House should subpoena John Bolton, Ms. Mulvaney, and any other witnesses or documents previously contested by the White House and litigate all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court if necessary. 
the president was successful in obstructing congressional proceedings in the fall when the House desired to move forward expeditiously given the urgency of the danger, but now there is no reason not to proceed to complete America's knowledge of Trump's misconduct in the Ukraine scandal. Second, the House should reopen its impeachment inquiry. These two articles of impeachment were far from Trump's only impeachable offenses to date. The reopen impeachment inquiry should consider the full panoply of Trump's misconduct as we laid out with our allies in, quote, impeachment for the people in November 2019. Third, the House should create and staff a new standing committee for the defense of free and fair elections. This committee should be prepared to address in real time and through both legislative and judicial venues further attempts by President Trump to interfere with or unlawfully influence the 2020 presidential election, suppress a vote, abuse his office for political purposes, take other unlawful measures to disrupt a free and fair election, or take action to retaliate against opponents or violate citizens' constitutional rights in the days following the election. This isn't the end of our fight. We will continue to advocate for a democracy accountable to the people. We will continue to stand up and to defend our Constitution. We will continue to build with our partners all across the country the movement to protect our republic. Thank you for standing with us as we continue to call for accountability for this lawless president's abuse of power and the public trust. And that's the entire letter. The fact that this letter did not receive coverage in the mainstream media only speaks to the cowardice reporters and the corruption of the corporate-owned press. Instead, we were treated to talking heads giving their limited opinions on how this farce of a procedure played out politically rather than challenge the crimes of this administration. Though, uh, though Trump t- attorney Alan Dershowitz was challenged a bit, there was no consistent challenge and demand for accountability and trans- transparency from the GOP-controlled Senate. Now we have FAIR, our Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, They published an article by Dorothy Benz calling out the weak reporting on the impeachment process by the venerable New York Times. Now, this piece demonstrated how the Times has helped normalize this rogue president, and as such, they have utterly failed as a major player of the fourth estate. So that insult to injury and demeaning Teen Vogue, but Teen Vogue has featured far better reporting with more in-depth analysis than the New York Times. So Dorothy Benz wrote, and the title is the Trump impeachment trial witness to a farce, and it is true. Um, looking at the New York Times coverage of Trump, not only through the impeachment process, but throughout his, his, his actual administration, um, she calls the coverage, quote, dumbfounding, disheartening, and infuriating, end quote. And she went on to say, while white nationalists are running the government and they've attacked multiple groups, They've, they've attacked groups on civil rights and civil liberties. They've attacked the independence of the judiciary, procedural democracy, human rights laws, and planetary survival regarding the actual degradation of our environment. Um, they have not really covered Trump. Then speaks to how the paper of record offered in an exercising spew, as she calls it, of he said, she said, false equivalences between the proven lies of Trump allies and those groups presenting actual proof of criminality on Trump's part. While providing no evidence of this false equivalence, um, the Times painfully avoids any, they don't really provide any evidence that this false equivalence has any merit. And to compare the activities of the white supremacists in the Trump administration to basically members of the House and Senate that are actually trying to respect rule of law during the impeachment process 
it is ludicrous. Um, the Times painfully also avoided any mention of the racist practices of this administration. They've also worked feverishly to portray Trump as merely another president, alluding to this administration as dealing with politics as usual. The Times basically has worked to normalize Trump, comparing the paper to the emperor's entourage, no matter how dangerous he becomes. And they, they really went off a King Vogue's warning in 2016 was unheeded by the New York Times, where Team Vogue said in their headline, Donald Trump is gaslighting America. Again, the Times ignored it. Um, and again, this was from Lauren Duca, you know, basically saying the obvious. And the Team Vogue article went on to detail the crimes of the Trump administration and how he's basically conned everybody into thinking they're not crimes. How the Times has downplayed the danger Trump poses to democracy itself in terms of his obstruction of Congress and the way GOP senators absolved in many crimes, such as defying subpoenas, smearing witnesses, and threatening witnesses to the level that would be considered witness tampering in an actual court of law, it is ludicrous. The Times downplayed these activities. Keep in mind, threatening witnesses with heads on pikes, threatening that their heads will be speared on a pike. That, if it were the card of law, that would reach the level of witness tampering. The Times downplayed all of this. They downplayed the refusal by the GOP to allow witnesses during the Senate impeachment trial. And then they downplayed the absolutely ludicrous circular argument offered by the Trump legal team, spearheaded by Dershowitz, that was based on a monarchical view of the presidency. And this... this piece goes on to say how basically the Times has continued to just, again, normal, try and normalize Trump. Um, there was one article they ran, and they said, why, titled, Why Block Impeachment Witnesses for Republicans of Many Reasons? Um, and they listed the reasons. The Times just, but they merely issue a recitation of GOP claims, and then they list Democratic counter-arguments but they offer no independent analysis of the point and, and no demand for any sources to be cited. And without any analysis, there's nothing there. It's just a laundry list. Um, you know, once again, the Times also, uh, in just a few days ago, pivots to this it's not that big a deal phase of normalization, according to Ben. Um, you know, there was a headline, Republicans emerging defense, Trump's actions were bad but not impeachable. Uh, you know, that goes into this whole idea that it wasn't that big a deal. But again, no mention that you have someone like Senator Bob Portman um, quoted as saying that Trump's actions were inappropriate, but he did, quote, not rising to the level of removing a duly elected president from office, end quote. But 20 years earlier, Senator Portman had no problems uh, impeaching a president, considering a presidential blowjob as rising, lying about a blowjob as rising to that level. This is beyond hypocrisy. Um, and again, the corruption of the GOP and all this is beyond belief. Um, we have the New York Times that's just basically complicit. Um, and, you know, it is sad, but it is true. Now we have what sort of abuse of power would amount to an impeachable offense because, again, in this whole dereliction of duty, 
they've claimed, oh, this doesn't reach an impeachable offense. Well, that may or may not be true. Um, the fact is that Trump appeared to entice, quote, a favor that would help his campaign. And it had to do with the Ukrainian president and refusal to issue any sort of aid until they, he received that favor. Now, again, to those of us who aren't a lawyer, that, that looks like bribery <laughs> because it sounds like bribery. But, again, these maneuvers are also constitutionally damaging. And they are a high crime because, again, it looks enough like bribery to be considered that way. And it resembles treason because, once again, we have Ukraine, who is supposedly an ally, dependent on us for support against Russia. And then you have a president who is practically wedded to Russian oligarchs who loaned him hundreds of millions of dollars. And, again, Russia remains an enemy state. So, once again, there is enough here to say that, yes, he should have been removed from office. Then you have the issue of Trump refusing to disperse funds until he gets what he wants. And he was in violation of what's called the Impoundment Control Act of 1974. And that was was passed to do exactly that, to prevent any president from basically getting a super veto over legislation when they refuse to release appropriated funds. So that's why the finding by the GAO that the president violated law is so important to should have been important to the impeachment proceedings, but it wasn't. You know, once again, the Senate Republicans decided they weren't going to follow the rule of law, and and that's sad. You know, federal law um, makes it a crime to quote attempt to cause any person to make a contribution of a thing of value, including services, for the benefit of any candidate by means of the denial or deprivation or the threat of the denial or deprivation of any payment or benefit of a program of the United States if such payment or benefit is provided for by an act of Congress, end quote. That's the Ukraine scandal in a nutshell. You cannot, you can't hide from it. And that was in, that was from Just Security and the author was Philip Bobbitt. And then, you know, I know, uh, I know Rick, you were worried about how the DC circuit court tossed out the emoluments lawsuit that was issued by members of Congress. And this also ties in. You've basically got a rogue presidency, um, and again, the GOP allowed him to get away with it. And this really, you know, the appeals court threw out a lawsuit. The members of Congress pushed, you know, stating that Trump violated the Constitution's emoluments clause, which says that he can't benefit from receive benefits monetarily or in any other way uh, receiving foreign payments while in office. And the the initial court uh, proceeding said, yes, you can keep going. But then this three-judge panel on the D.C. Appeals Circuit um, issued what's called a pure curium opinion saying that there was no standing to sue. And the reason this is pro- problematic, and I agree with you, is that the court said their conclusion was straightforward, quote, because the members, 29 senators and 186 members of the House of Representatives do not constitute the majority of either body and are therefore powerless to approve or deny the president's acceptance of foreign emoluments. 
Um, basically, they're saying because the Democrats didn't have a majority in the House, that they don't have a right to actually go to court to, you know, to go after a president that clearly violated the emoluments clause. So the question is, on the court, the appeals court, they're abdicating their duty to adjudicate alleged crimes. And, you know, once again, this is a very dangerous ruling because it's basically saying that this is dictatorship of the majority, that if a majority of members in Congress don't, they don't have a majority, they can't bring a lawsuit against a rogue president. And the ramifications are dire. Now we come to, I found this, um, it was an interview between Bill Moyers, who I love, and um, Stephen Harper, who is a law professor, who was ironically a student of Dershowitz when he was in law school. And this is, it was just done a few days ago. The title is Lawyers, Liars, and Trump on Trial. Bill Moyers details how the GOP cover-up puts America on extremely dangerous ground. And, you know, first he explains, you know, who Harper was. He was a graduate of magna cum laude from Harvard Law School. One of his professors was Dershowitz. And he's recognized as one of the best lawyers in America. He teaches an adjunct at Northwestern University Law School, authored four books. And he's also created what is called the Trump-Russia Timeline, which launched at BillMoyers.com which basically is becoming the definitive resource of what the, what's happened with this administration. And the two talk about what happened with this entire process. You know, the idea that so many senators were trying to explain away their ludicrous vote, saying that it's okay to acquit this criminal president. And... Uh, you know, they spoke about how the fact, you know, Dershowitz made the insane claim that if the president acted in what he thought was national interest, then it wouldn't be an impeachable offense, even if he broke the law. Um, and that's crazy. So Moyers goes into the idea he mentioned how before Bill Clinton's impeachment in 98, Dershowitz was asked again um, if he agreed that uh, some of the most, what they call grievous offenses, um, might not actually be violations of criminal law when it comes to impeachment. And he was asked about that, and Dershowitz said, I do if those offenses, quote, subvert the very essence of democracy, end quote. I'm going to repeat that. Dershowitz was asked if these, if impeachable offenses, even if they did not uh, include violations of criminal law, you know, would they still be impeachable if it was offenses against our democracy, our constitutional form of government, and Dershowitz was quoted as saying, yes, if those offenses subvert the very essence of democracy. That's pretty clear. And then Dershowitz was quoted further saying, quote, it certainly doesn't have to be a crime if you have someone who completely corrupts the office of president, who abuses trust, and who poses great danger to our liberty. You don't need a technical crime, end quote. And, again, Harper talks about when you're assessing possible impeachment of the president, what we should be looking at so that this doesn't happen again and they don't get to wiggle out. You have to look at their acts of state as one criterion. Another criterion would be how they conduct the foreign policy. And the third criterion is whether they are trying to subvert the Constitution. 
And, you know, Moyer said, well, you know, it's clear Trump basically attempted extortion of Ukraine was, yes, an act of state, and it did corrupt our foreign policy. And we had more than one diplomat testify to that. And it does subvert the Constitution. But Dershowitz switched his, his tune. And then Dershowitz said, quote, abusive or obstructive conduct is not impeachable and an actual crime is required. And then Dershowitz had the goal to say he was defending Trump to protect the Constitution. And, you know, Harper just said, look, he, to quote Harper, Trump hit the trifecta, okay? His crimes were it was an act of state, it did involve foreign policy, and it was most certainly a subversion of the Constitution. And Dershowitz knows this. So, you know, there are some academics that would claim, well, you know, maybe he moved 180 degrees away from what he said previously, but that's bogus here, all right? It, it just is. Um, you know, this really does, according to Moyers and Harper both, it looks, this looks a lot like what Nixon claimed when, with that famous quote or infamous quote, it, quote, if the president does it, it's not illegal. And, and that's, end quote. And that's what the Republicans are claiming. And, you know, this, their strategy, the legal strategy of Trump's legal team was to obfuscate, to confuse, and, and distract. And this is exactly why, in my opinion, the press should analyze and ask the, the, the reporting and ask those tough questions, check sourcing, demand an explanation from every senator that voted to acquit. And, and the fact is, the conversation went on, and it was clear from Harper and Moyers that, yes, Trump and his minions have been gaslighting the nation. Uh, and Trump's claimed, you know, according to Moyers, you know, quote, I've got Article 2 of the Constitution, that lets him do what he wants. And, and that's what Nixon was claiming, too. And, again, we know that's not legitimate, but that approach is also behind uh, the Attorney General Barr's extreme version of the unitary executive theory, and that's why it's so dangerous. We've talked about this on this show before. Um, this was uh, no no uh, mystery here whatsoever. Um, and then also, uh, you know, you have this instance here where Harper also goes to say when you, there's evidence that Trump's lawyers lied, all right? They lied when they claimed that they didn't have access to documents in a secure room during the House procedure. That wasn't true. Um, Pat Cipollone, as well as Dershowitz, they stood there and they lied with the chief justice sitting right there and nothing was said. And, uh, you know, Harper put out, you know, if you're a lawyer and your client is involved in undermining the foundation of rule of law in the United States, you know, doesn't that set the argument that that lawyer, in this case Dershowitz and Cipollone, should be disbarred for this? Because they're not allowed to actually lie. And I can hear people laughing, but it's the truth. And this is this Article 2 claim that Trump keeps pushing is really, we can't let that sit. It's a very dangerous precedent. Dershowitz has helped it along. And this idea that Article 2 allows what can only be called presidential lawlessness. We cannot allow this to stand. Uh, then there was an implied threat by Senator Lamar Alexander. You know, he quoted, if you impeach the president, there'll be war in this country. So 
So basically he's threatening the country saying, you know, we're not going to let this stand. And that was a very dangerous thing that he said. Um, when you look at all of these things together, between the enabling of the mainstream corporate press, basically trying to normalize Donald Trump, uh, when you have incriminating emails that GOP leaders kept from the public and the impeachment that came out later, when you have um, basically an impeachment process that refuses to allow witnesses then you have a formula for what can only be called tyranny, and we can't allow this. And so, you know, I have kind of a long conclusion. Now, while I – and part of this has to do with the process. Our legal process is, is flawed. So while I hate agreeing with Mitch McConnell on anything, he's correct on one detail. The impeachment trial is structured to allow members of the Senate to act both as judges and jurors. This is not a partisan statement on my part. It was found both on GOP sources, and also on a document attributed to progressive sources such as Public Citizen and Crew. And the document was called Basic Principles for a Full, Transparent, and Fair Impeachment Trial. And there were proper legal citations and discussion. After this depressing discovery, I have to say that the problem with the Trump acquittal isn't merely the end result, but the procedure itself. Once again, we have an alleged legal procedure that fails to reflect any sense of actual justice. How can a legislative body such as the U.S. Senate act as both judge and jury and reflect a fair result? This is beyond partisan politics. It speaks to the very concept of equal justice before the law. If the procedure demanded an actual trial, then witnesses and other evidence would have been forced to follow the rules of evidence for any trial. Why should the presidency be above the law? Why should the U.S. Senate be allowed to flout the actual rule of law by claiming their own fiefdom? Why should executive privilege exist at all? Shouldn't such privilege also be held to some accountable standards? The refusal to allow witness testimony contributed to the extreme secrecy of this present administration. Now, it's been said by some that, quote, secrecy promotes tyranny. But my own senator from Missouri, Senator Roy Blunt, has different ideas on this topic. Earlier this week, Roy Blunt, who is not coincidentally the Senate Rules Committee chair, in his defense of Senate GOP action to acquit Trump, claimed, among other things, that the POTUS is entitled to executive privilege, and that privilege generates a need, use Blunt's words, for unfettered advice. Now, this unfettered advice apparently requires complete secrecy and attorney anonymity for OLC attorneys, White House counsel, and personal attorneys who grant this advice. The claim is that professionals giving advice will be unable to fully complete their assigned task without such secrecy and anonymity. They would feel restrained by anything else except that the law is supposed to restrain those who would unfairly dictate and lord over the rest of us. That is its function. Without such restraint that is fairly applied, society would descend into chaos with the strongest claiming that might is right as opposed to equal justice for the law. But these OLC attorneys and White House counsel have claimed they are unable to do their jobs without blanket immunity for present and any future misdeeds. They have essentially declared a need to be above the law in order to do their jobs. No other professional group has ever made such a ludicrous and ethically warped demand. But that is the price these attorneys claim on behalf of an unrestrained monarchical presidency. When we examine the core of the problem, which is a claim of unfettered advice, we find the following. It's from this claim that demands unfettered advice that the argument unravels. 
This very unfettered advice serves, also serves as a primary excuse for a level of secrecy that rivals the Pentagon, even on non-sensitive issues. It's a blanket permission slip to refuse any level of accountability because there is zero transparency. Partnered to that illegitimate blanket secrecy, which denies Congress access, is an equally illegitimate demand by executive branch attorneys for personal anonymity. It's this anonymity granted the very attorneys who knowingly have created get-out-of-jail-free cards for executive actions, which are not only unconstitutional, but also constitute crimes against humanity that's the very core of this attack on democratic rule itself. And it's from this executive branch demand for attorney anonymity that the world is witnessed. And, and this is where we have this issue of balance of power. As long as the anonymity is allowed to stand, the public will be deprived of accountability, including the ability to press charges against attorneys who knowingly steal power for any president while unilaterally declaring these opinions as the law of the land. No names regarding individuals, which individuals provided which opinions, and there's no prosecution because you don't know who did what. And the executive branch attorneys who essentially write the opinions and obfuscate the facts and the truth for a series of presidents seeking to break the law for their own benefit. So in conclusion, Senator Roy Blunt is wrong. Wrong. He told the House to go back and do their homework, but the problem is now. The problem is the executive branch and their GOP enablers in the Senate. Both the POTUS and the party in power relied on opinions created by executive branch attorneys to escape any accountability. At the end of the day, the cover-up the world witnessed as the GOP acquitted Trump in a sham trial that forbade any witness testimony was directly and indirectly caused by the executive branch office of the DOJ and White House counsel and his personal attorneys. The opinions they weaponized the monarchical presidency against democracy itself were crafted by attorneys knowingly breaking their oath as officers of the court. The very rule of law they claimed to defend was defanged by political ambition and moral cowardice. Not moral cowardice. I only wonder which category Roy Blood fits into. And that's my report. Thank you so much. Janine, as always, top-notch, to the point, and well-argued. Thank you again. Have a wonderful evening, and we will talk to you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. And uh, now I want to leave you with that Appalachian Grandma. Now, granted, this was recorded when there was a different speaker, but I think you'll get the message just as well. Mr. Ryan and Mr. McConnell, do you think Appalachian women like me with steel in our backbones will yield? You are kidding yourselves if you think we will be turned around. Did you, did you self-professed Christians not learn about Isaiah chapter 10? Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Woe unto them. Last night, the Senate voted to rob the working middle class and the working poor, the elderly, our children, students, and veterans, to further enrich the filthy rich and large corporations. 
These so-called Christians say they follow the teachings of Jesus. They do not. They worship at the altar of money and power and hold tight to the philosophy of Ayn Rand. They lie and say they worship at the altar of Christ. In fact, they kneel and bend their knees and kiss the rings of the Koch brothers and other billionaire donors who are hell-bent on smashing the 99%. Listen very carefully, Mr. Ryan, Mr. McConnell, and your greed ilk. We, the people of the United States, are mobilizing. My sisters and brothers are rising up together to fight against the attack that you are giving to our people. And we will not yield until our people are free from the money changers and those who worship money and power. We, the people, see your tax scam for what it is, and we will overcome. Stay tuned, Paul and Mitch. We are coming for you. Give it up for Paul. Good night, friends. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.